are listening to the Traditional Outdoors Podcast. This episode of the Traditional Outdoors Podcast is brought to you by St. Joe River Bows. If you're looking for a custom longbow or recurve, then St. Joe River Bows has you covered. St. Joe's is a family-owned company that specializes in traditional bows for the entire family. Plus their forward handle design, powerful limbs, and unique wood and color combinations make St. Joe's the perfect choice for the budding or experienced archer or bow hunter. Tracy offers bow options for all members of the family from the youngest to the oldest, and they even offer a trade-in program on all youth bows so that as the little ones outgrow their bow, they can trade them in and use that towards the purchase of a bow that better fits their growing needs. And for listeners of the Traditional Outdoors podcast, David and Tracy are going to include a St. Joe River Bows t-shirt with any new bow purchased. Just mention that you heard about them while listening to this podcast. So when you're ready for a new bow, be sure to check out their website at stjoeriverbows.com or give Tracy a call at 517-617-3658 and be sure to tell them Traditional Outdoors sent you. Now on to the show. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Steve Angel, feeling a bit under the weather. Come managed to uh, contract a cold sometime over the last few days, but we're going to try to get through this. I'm going to let my, my buddy Nick do a little bit more talking tonight than normal, which he's probably going to be uh, happy to hear since I, I think the last two or three episodes we've been on, I've been just kind of talking all over you, Nick. So I'm going to try not to do that tonight. How you doing, buddy? Oh, I'm doing good, man. I'm just, uh, I'm happy we're into April and we're getting into warmer weather. And uh, unfortunately with that is, is all the, all the, the pollen and the allergies are out right now. And I'm feeling a little bit of that myself. So yeah, I was, yeah. I started coming down with this, uh, I guess yesterday and I thought, well, maybe it's just the pollen cause everything here is as yellow as it can be. Um, well, I woke up this morning. I was like, no, that's not, that's not allergies. That's a, that's a full fledged <laughs> cold. So uh, but hopefully it's it's just a cold and I'll, I'll get over it in a few days. Hoping to was hoping to hit a stream this weekend. It may this may put that in a little bit of jeopardy, but we'll we'll see how things play out. You, well, I hope hope you can, man. Have you uh, you managed to hit the water yet? I know you were talking about it. I know you went out and did some turkey turkey scouting. Oh, that part was great. Um, I wanted to go fishing, and then um, the, the the kids were actually up north to see my mom and stay with my mom for spring break all week, and. Um, I, uh, I was, I got, I dug all my stuff out, all my fly gear, got all my fly boxes out everything like that, you know, and I was, I was getting ready to go. And then, uh, you know, Jess said, well, Hey, you gotta, you gotta, what's going on up there on the roof? There's like some shingles up or whatever. And I said, I don't know what that's about. And, you know, I went up there and, and I fixed that. And by the time I fixed that, I realized I hadn't cleaned my gutters. So I started cleaning my gutters. And then after that, I realized my car was filthy and I started working <laughs> on my car and I never did go fishing. <laughs> so uh you know i just don't have a lot of time to do that stuff so uh, i i plan on hitting it pretty soon but you know i got i got trout camp with some with some friends on the Asable here coming up on uh in middle of may and uh i'm looking forward to that so yeah i've been saying i was gonna get out for weeks which i did i did manage to toss a fly a little bit while i was hunting up hunting up in south carolina but uh not not really the same as being on a trout stream so well i'm, I'm gonna be green hopefully i didn't forget everything so yeah, yeah, it's like riding a bike, man. It's like riding I, a bike. I hope so. <laughs> well, I tell you what, let's uh, let's let's jump in and introduce our guest. Uh, this past weekend, so let me back up a little bit further than that. So our guest tonight, uh, I had actually reached out to 
uh, I don't know, a month, a couple months back about being on the show. And it was one of the, one of the funny things he, uh, instead of saying, you know, what time he responded back and, uh, said, well, you know what, before you interview, you interview me, you ought to have this guy on. And he was talking about Jimmy Behag. So I actually reached out to Jimmy and had him on that same week. Um, but then this past weekend, uh, he showed up at our local North Georgia Traditional Archery Club and actually joined me and my daughter, Bella, in shooting around, had a really great time. So with that said, welcome to the show, Mr. Scott Moore. How are you, Scott? I'm doing great. Uh, thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure and an honor to be on, and I'm looking forward to a good evening. So are we. So are we. I'm gonna, like I said, I'm, I, wished I, I wish my throat felt a little bit better, but we'll make the most of it. Um, so Scott, we've, we've, we've talked back and forth on, on Facebook for, for quite some time. And this past, this past Sunday was, was the first time I've got a a chance to actually meet you. Um, I do know about your, your website. Um, and I have, I have to ask you this question though. Uh, and I saved it unlike Nick until we actually started recording. Uh, (laughs) but uh, do you, do you have, so the, the website is, is WAC outdoors. Correct. And I was going to ask you now, do you just call that whack outdoors or do you usually spell, you know, actually uh, call out what the, the WAC stands for in wild about Christ? No, we normally just go with whack outdoors, but it does stand for wild about Christ outdoors. Correct. So just you know, give us a give us a high level overview of of what the website's about, and uh, uh, maybe even some a little bit of history there, and we'll just see where the conversation takes us. Sure. Um, wild about Christ is a concept for ministry that I came up with. Uh, quite a few years ago, actually. And the concept was to uh, meet men where they were, out in the woods, hunting, fishing, camping, hiking, whatever they might be interested in doing, and using that setting as a jumping-off place uh, to connect with them and kind of help them with some hurdles that we all deal with as men. I guess the best way of putting it is, and we discussed this before we hit the record button, Uh, I have been heavily involved in church for a lot of years. I've always had a heart and a passion for men's ministry. And although the church does a fantastic job, I think at times the church setting is not uh, conducive to entertaining men that are not already in church. And uh, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a Bible thumper. There's a lot of guys that have been around me for a long time and know that my... uh, demeanor and my mode of operation is pretty laid back and casual and as far as the ministry part of this is concerned uh, all of us as men struggle whether we are attending church or not and uh, you know human nature is timeless the same things that made men happy mad sad or glad 2,000 years ago are still making men happy, mad, sad, or glad today. And because we all struggle with the same things, whether we will admit it or not, and that is primarily greed, lust, anger, uh, to name the top three, uh, it affects all of us. And because that human nature is so predictable, and because we all struggle in those areas many times at different points in our life, 
uh, I can honestly say when I'm around a group of men that I pretty well know them like they're my brothers, even if we have never met, because we're all kind of in the same boat paddling. And the way that I put this to most folks and the way that I firmly believe it should pan out is most of us left to our own devices struggle with life's issues. And if we can look inside ourselves and say that everything that we have done with all the resources that we have available to us, if so far that's not working, it's time for a new plan. And I offer those men a spiritual alternative as a new plan. Uh, I don't beat around the bush about it. Uh, The answer in my mind to most of our trouble is uh, Jesus Christ. And I do everything within my power to help men that are uh, leaning in that direction to seek some relief from their sorrow, I guess is the best way of putting it. Well, that actually, that makes a lot of sense, uh, Scott. I mean, I, you know, just in my personal experience, you know, I, I look to, I found traditional archery because I was looking for a way to, to fight, you know, the stress of being, you know, yeah, I met my wife and, and we were thinking about starting a family and I had a new job and I, I needed, I, had, I always had an anxiety and I was looking for somewhere to put it. I needed something else to do. And you know, I found archery that way and I got a whole lot more than that. You know, before I knew it, I had, I couldn't believe the community and the kin and the, and the kinsmanship and, and the togetherness that archery brought. And, you know, in my case, in particular, the longbow, cause you know, we, Steve and I are both belong to a, a, a really big longbow organization here in Michigan. And that's the first thing everybody talks about when they talk about the longbow organization is how the longbow is a conduit for togetherness and friendship and family. And, and, you know, you go on several, you know, they're basically retreats, but several camping trips every, every year. Um, and it becomes extended family. So I think a lot of people can relate to that. Absolutely. And, and, you know, all, all of us as men, if some stranger shows up on our door, we have not formed an opinion about that individual yet. And it is going to make us very reticent to buy in to what, he's, uh, what his agenda is. And I think the opportunity to share a campfire, to share a meal, uh, shoot some arrows together, catch some fish together, that bonding and that human connection is imperative uh, to set up a situation where you can support each other, help each other, uh, you know, whatever you want to do with that. Sure. And so what's interesting to me, you know, and it just to back up a little bit is that now, now for you, this has become, it's like you've melded two worlds, you and two passions. You've got, I mean, anybody who has seen any of your videos and definitely folks check them out, um, or been on the website, read the blog, or, or even, or had a chance to maybe even attend one of your classes. And we can talk about them a little bit later. But knows that you're you're very passionate about pretty much all things outdoors. You know, a simpler way of doing things, survival, a, a variety of different tools, whether it's bow, atlatl, whatever that is. And then you've got this passion for for Christ as well and for the ministry. 
So what kind of happened first, if you want to take us back to like, how did you get into all of this? And if you, you can talk about one or the other or both or, or when you found one or the all other, right. and you know, I'm sure we'd all love to hear yeah, it. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to make this as concise as possible. Uh, I was born and raised in Ohio. I'm 59 years old. I was born in 1960. And I was born to a father that was a very avid outdoorsman. His passion was muzzleloaders. But he also shot archery. In my earliest memories, when I was seven years old, my, which was 67, of archery, my dad shot target archery. And I remember specifically, he was shooting a Martin Cougar target bow. And I don't even know anymore if that's a 66-inch bow or 70-inch bow, but the bow's long. I was was seven years old. I couldn't even shoot the bow because when I put my hand on the handle on the riser, you know, and the bottom limb was sitting on the ground, my hand on the riser was up above my forehead. (laughs) And, And I remember specifically my dad got a milk crate. And I stood on the milk crate so that I could shoot his bow without dragging the bottom limb tip on the ground and started shooting a bow. And he had a buddy named Don Gray that was very avid in the uh, black powder and muzzleloading movement with him. And Don Gray gave me his son's bow. And that was a little lemonwood longbow. It was 35 pounds. And I can't remember how long the bow was. I still have the bow. So I had a little lemonwood, 35-pound longbow. And at that time, which was in the late 60s, you could go to the hardware store and buy arrows. And they always had the arrows in a great big display box. It was cardboard, and the arrows were 35 cents apiece. And I would pick up, literally pick up bottles and turn them at the store for the money and go to the hardware store and buy arrows with that pop bottle money. And I can tell you with all certainty that I harassed every living thing within walking distance of my home with that bow. (laughs) And uh, it literally just started from there. I will tell you that I, for an outdoorsman, I led an idyllic childhood. I, I lived in a very rural farm community. I was surrounded by creeks and streams and ponds and woodlots. And all through, uh, grammar school, junior high. My existence in the fall was I would come home from school. I would drop my books in my good coat at the front door. I would drop through the house to the back door. I'd put on a pair of hip boots, my hunting coat, uh, grab a shotgun or a bow, whatever. I had a little dog named Fanny, a little beagle dog, and she would meet me at the back corner of the yard, and we would take off and not come home until dark. And I hunted rabbits, pheasants. I trapped muskrats, raccoons, mink, fox. I literally stayed in the woods as many minutes of the day as I could. And and I'll tell you how times have changed. Uh, Trapping was the largest part of my income for a lot of years. And when I was still in high school, I would check my traps before school in the dark. And my trap line was about three miles. I had about a mile and a half loop on each side of the road. 
you know, if I got through that loop early enough in the morning and got back up on the hard road before the bus came through the first time, Mrs. Hembry, the bus driver, would let me get on the bus, drive me down to my house and drop me off, and I'd hurry up and get ready for school. And the next time she came through, she'd pick me up and I'd go to school. And there were many mornings that I stumbled out in that road, muddy, bloody, had a dead fox slung over my shoulder and a 22 or a 20-gauge shotgun in my hand, and Mrs. Emery would let me get on the bus in that state and drive me home. Wow. That will not happen today. Man, that that is hard to imagine. When when I got old enough (laughs) to drive, I would set traps in the culverts of all the streams running under the road between my house and the school, and I would check those traps in the morning. And I always had a 22 with me, to uh, if I caught a, uh, a raccoon or whatever to dispatch it. Well, when I got to school, I would take my gun into school with me because I didn't want anybody to take it out of my vehicle. And I would put it in my locker or maybe take it to the shop class and our shop teacher would lock it up in the tool crib for me. But I lived in a rural community and this is in the early 70s and guns and knives were a part of our daily existence they were accepted, and uh, it just isn't that way anymore. That is for sure. No, I can't even fathom it. I mean, being, you know, I'm 37, like, that would have been unheard of. I think I got in trouble when I was in first grade for having a wooden knife that my uncle carved me that I brought in for show and tell. So, yeah, a different time. And I remember we could we could actually... Uh, I remember seeing, you know, vehicles in the parking lot with with gun racks and guns in the vehicles at school. But I, as far as like carrying them inside, that wouldn't have worked even when I was when I was in high school. And we're not that; our ages are not that far apart. No, Scott. we discussed that we're almost the same age. But anyway, uh, and I think my history as a bow hunter is important. Uh, I, to- I told you, my, you know, my dad was definitely an archer, and his great love was squirrel hunting. So we had a hunting cabin in the hills of West Virginia between Romney, West Virginia, and Winchester, Virginia at a place called Cape and Bridge on the Cape and River. And my dad's great love was hunting squirrels with a muzzleloader. So the first week of squirrel season was also the first week of archery deer season. It was normally the second week of October, around October 8th. When I was about 12 years old, we were going up on the mountain in the afternoon to squirrel hunt and we was walking through a pasture and there was a stock pond and like many ponds in west virginia they had pushed up a, a dam on a small stream and backed the stream up so as we walked around the bottom of that dam it was pretty warm there was a small buck that was bedded right at the base of that dam where it was cool and damp and i'm sure that's why he was there and the dam formed a wall so he didn't have anywhere to go when he jumped up except right past us to run out of there. And by this time, I was already hunting small game, groundhogs, rabbits with, with a, a bow. I had an old uh, a, a solid fiberglass 40-pound recurve bow by that time I was shooting. And when that deer run by, and I was about 12 years old, my dad asked me, he said, do you think you could have shot that deer with a bow? What's a 12-year-old going to say? Heck yes, I'd have shot it running. (laughs) So 
he asked me, he said, do you want to bow hunt serious? Do, do you want us to bow hunt deer? I said, absolutely. So when we went home from that trip, we went to the uh, Kmart in Barberton, Ohio. By the way, I, I am a Yankee. I know that's a great disappointment to a lot of you Southern folk. But um, <laughs> we were living in uh, Copley, Ohio, and I remember like it was yesterday, we drove to the Kmart in Barberton, Ohio, and at that time, Fred Bear had his big marketing push on to be a two-season hunter. He was appealing to the gun hunting crowd to try archery. And they had two Bear Grizzly recurve bows hanging on the rack. They had a 45-pounder and a 50-pounder. So we bought both of them. And I got a 45-pound Bear Grizzly, and my dad got a 50-pound Bear Grizzly. And we bought some targets and arm guards and finger tabs. And, of course, we came home, set three bales of hay up in the backyard, put a pie plate on them, and started preparing to deer hunt with these bows. And uh, we didn't know anything about, like, broadhead alignment, straightening wooden arrows, anything. And at that time, also, uh, from Fred Bear, you could buy a dozen arrows. And in that box, six of them would have Bear razor heads on them, and six of them would have field points on them. You could also buy a dozen bear arrows in a box that six of them would be field points and six of them would be flu-flus with blunts on them. So, of course, we bought all of them. I had all kind of arrows. And uh, we hunted in West Virginia at our cabin. And, of course, any mountain environment, you had flat land along the river. That's where all the cabins were. That's where the pasture was. And you was at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain would go up to a good bench about one-third of the way up, another good bench about two-thirds of the way up, and then the ridgetop. And the deer typically would bed on one of those two benches, depending on the time of year and the climate, the temperature. And in the evening, they'd come down, they'd get in that thicket, and they'd water in a stock pond. And then when it got dark, they'd come out into the pasture. Now, keep in mind, I'm 12, 13 years old, 14 maybe. And... Uh, the way that we hunted was we would squirrel hunt in the morning. In the afternoon after lunch, we'd do small pushes or drives in these thickets. And then in the evening, we'd go get on a stand and hunt a food source. My dad and his buddies were fairly successful hunters. I was, by this time, I'm going to say I was 13. So there was a thicket at the base of this mountain. And it was perfect deer habitat because you had a steep mountain, you had a small strip of a thicket, and then you had an open pasture. And the deer staged in that thicket to come out in the pasture and feed in the evening at the early bow season. So my dad would put me on a stand at one end of this thicket, and he would push from the other end. And it wasn't a drive like beating pots and pans, hooping and hollering. He was pretty adept at what we were doing. He would use the wind, slight little bit of pressure, make sure the deer could smell him, and try to get deer to move in front of him towards my shooting position. And this happened on a regular basis. We saw a lot of deer, but we didn't know what we were doing. We couldn't hit anything and didn't really have a whole lot of success. So I started getting better about hiding. And I found a good deer trail, and right beside the deer trail, and when I say right beside, you know, by today's standards, to set up for a bow shot, we'd back up off that trail 15 yards, 18 yards, whatever. Well, with all my vast knowledge and experience, 
I got at a bush about four yards off that trail, and uh, it was a snicker bush. If you don't know what a snicker bush is, that's saw briars. When your buddy gets hung up in it, you snicker. And <laughs> I, I cut a hole out with a pair of pruning shears in that snicker bush, and I, and I got in that thing with my bow. And like anybody that age, a lot of time had passed. I hadn't heard anything. Nothing was going on. I was bored, not paying attention. And uh, I started hearing some twigs breaking, some stuff moving around. And I figured it was my dad coming to get me, and I really was just fully prepared to just stand up, get my stuff, and go on our way. And I actually saw, like, some brown hair moving, you know, through a hole in the brush about 20 yards out in front of me. And I said, my goodness, this is a deer. So I got my bow up, and I got ready, and I'm waiting, and this thing's getting closer and closer and closer. And then pretty soon, I saw a horn coming out from behind this bush right in front of my blind and notice i didn't say antlers i said horn and this horn was about four foot long and it was attached to a bull weighed about 1500 pounds (laughs) so by this time me and this bull lock eyes and that's a mistake because when i did that that bull realized there was something in that bush and I put my head down, I closed my eyes, I wasn't even breathing, I pretended like the bull wasn't there, I wasn't there, I didn't hear anything. And I thought, well, maybe he's gone. And the next thing, I start feeling this snotty hot air and breath on the top of my head. And this bull's got his nose snuck, stuck in my bush, uh, smelling me. The next thing I know, he rears his head back, and he turns his head to the side, and he gets that one horn, and he sticks it in that bush and starts fishing around that bush for what's in there. So I'm rolling around on the back of my snicker bush blind, and I'm going to tell you what. I got saved once and rededicated my life to the Lord twice before that bull got done. I did not think that's where you were going with this story. <laughs> but, um, oh, man. That was one of my uh, introductions into deer hunting with a bow. That That is a heck of a first. Jeez. I, I didn't even. <laughs> where did the bull come from? They, oh, you said you were yeah, hunting we, a we field, was on a, right? We was on a farm. We was on a pasture. And uh, that bull was laid up in that thicket. And when I say thicket, it was pretty thick. But anyway, you know, I look back at those days in in the start of my bow hunting career. And the one thing that we did that people don't do enough of today that really prepared us to be efficient bow hunters is we hunted small game. We hunted rabbits. We hunted groundhogs. We even hunted pheasants and quail. And we spent a we spent a great deal of time bow hunting small game. And the biggest benefit of that that I think a lot of guys today miss is they'll get their equipment and they'll get all set up to hunt deer. And they practice and they start having contact with living animals in the woods. That is a hurdle to overcome. You know, shooting your bow to target is one thing, but shooting at a live animal is a different situation even if it is only like a groundhog. And, and I think that having that uh, 
having that stepping stone of successfully shooting some game animals like some rabbits and some groundhogs, I think that's a I think that's a good first move towards getting your your hunting career on the right path with a bow. But the reason I mention that, um, I did a lot of groundhog hunting with a bow. Right at I lived in Summit County, Ohio. At that time, there wasn't a lot of deer. Uh, matter of fact, the first year that I actually deer hunted in my home county, the, the Department of Natural Resources said the deer population was 1.5 deer per square mile. So if we saw a deer track, we hunted it, period. But when I was small game hunting around my rural community, um, hunting groundhogs, I had a farm that I hunted all the time. Uh, a very gracious older gentleman let me hunt his farm, and um, he would let me roam that place freely. He probably had uh, 200 acres. And I shot a lot of groundhogs on that farm, and it was a real stepping stone in, in my bow hunting career. And But the interesting thing about what you experience as a younger person in those times, times were different. I actually ran into an older gentleman out there when, the, when we first had a bow season in that county. He had a 410 shotgun, and he had an arrow stuck in it. And that's what he was bow hunting with. And what he had done was he had taken the shell and, and ringed it and got rid of the shot. So all he had was a, a 410 shell with just the, uh, the powder and the, and the shot wad. And he had an arrow stuck down the barrel to the broadhead. And that's what he was, that's what he was bow hunting with. How did, how, how did that even work? I can assure. I mean, I get it. I get it would propel it. Right. But I, uh, wow. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. But that's that was one of the things I was exposed to early. Uh, oh, he, the man also had. This is a horrible thing to say, but this is a podcast, so we're going for it. Um, <laughs> he had a lot of chickens. Shoot. And those chickens was today they call them uh, free range chickens. Back then they were just chickens. And sometimes those chickens get back in the woods quite a ways from the barn. And I have to admit, I've done some chicken hunting with a recurve bow. <laughs> and, I, mean, I mean, if they're back there. And, and, and the reason I bring this up, and this is vital information for turkey hunters today. Birds are hard to kill with a daggone arrow. And a two-blade's not getting it. Better use a four blade or a three blade. That's just my humble opinion based on personal experience with chickens. I'll just let that sit where it is. <laughs> so why is that? Elaborate on that a little bit. <laughs> you know, if you look at the anatomy. On, wait a minute, turkey, wait a minute, wait a minute. It, elaborate on the, on the broadhead statement or elaborate on the chicken hunting? you got to be more specific, Nick. <laughs> well, I mean, you could elaborate on that, the 410 with the arrow in it. The uh, <laughs> There's a lot to elaborate on <laughs> Well, I, I guess to just put this in proper perspective, I, I guess one thing I want to say is uh, – uh, I'm, I'm coming from an experience base that has me well-grounded in my theories. We'll put it that way. Uh, any notion I take on what's good or bad for bow hunting, I, I can promise you in one way, shape, or form, I've uh, fleshed that out. But anyway, uh, it is turkey season. we got a lot, got a lot, 
a lot of guys out there turkey hunting. And uh, birds are tough. You know, a bird's anatomy and their nervous system and their everything about them. They're hard to anchor with an arrow. And uh, I know a lot of guys like using Zwickies and Aces and Two Blades, and I do too, and I shot them all. But, you know, like that bare razor head with that bleeder, that's not something guys use so much today. That was a darn good head. And that did a really good job of anchoring a lot of things that would otherwise get gone. You know, on larger game, you want penetration, but on smaller stuff, and birds sure. in particular, uh, I think the, the biggest, best wound channel that you can create is absolutely the way to go. Well, well, and I asked that for a reason, because when I first started into traditional bow hunting, you know, I didn't really want to deer hunt. I wanted to turkey hunt. I said, maybe I'll turkey hunt thinking, oh, turkeys are easier than deer, which, yeah, no. Um, But everybody had told me, well, yeah, you use a you use a two blade for for deer and you use a three or four blade for turkeys. But nobody ever told me why. Well, you have a greater chance of breaking their backbone, breaking their wing. Mm-hmm. But you have a greater chance of afflicting enough damage to that bird that you can get your hands on him. It's really what mm-hmm. it comes down to. Because you can zip a two-blade. Now, you know, anything you say today on social media will be refuted, disputed, and debated. You know, no. we're not even going to get into that right now. But <laughs> just my personal experience, two-blades are not getting it for birds. You know, I, I would much prefer to have a, a four-blade or a three-blade. Because well, while we're on the go ahead, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, while we're on the subject, I mean, I recently read one of your blog posts that you were you broke down, you know, what you like to shoot on on you know for certain right. game, and did a nice job of it. And you you've had a, you know some a video or two on that, and uh, I noticed you uh, you like to uh, I I you you small game probably more than anybody i've i've seen so far and eventually you know especially with all the stories you just told us and whatnot what do you like to use for uh for squirrel hunting well i'll back up i'll tell you what i don't like to use okay okay i love judo points judo points have been a staple for stump shooters and small game hunters for years and years and years and years but i can't tell you how many squirrels i shot with a judo point that got up and looked mad and left I would echo that. They, uh, they. I saw my dad shoot one probably uh, ten yards away in the square of the back with a judo, and it just looked at him after it yipped right. and ran away. <laughs> and and I wasn't prepared uh, to do this. So I don't want to tell you wrong as far as brand names, but there's a couple of points on the market right now. I think one is made by Ace, like the the hex head. I think I'm saying that right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wrote a blog about it, and I can't remember now. I think it's the Hex Head by Ace. It's the Hex Head. And that's got like a concave, almost like a hollow point. It's got scalloped edges. Those things are very effective on rabbits and squirrels. Uh, they do a lot of tissue damage, and they penetrate much better than something like a Judah Point would do. And I have had extremely good success with them. That's uh that's pretty popular head around right. here. We really like uh really like the ha- that the hex heads. I've been using I think I've had the same hex heads for 6 years. Right. Honestly. And, like I've shot them into everything. They're just they're tough and you can get them heavy and and I really like that. Right. Um 
You know, do you use uh, do you flu flu your squirrel arrows or do you just I go shoot just normal regular fletching? arrows? In my mind, flu flus are too noisy and too slow, and I've watched too many squirrels jump out of the way before mm-hmm. they get there. Yep, I thought so too. Wanted to hear from somebody that did it more, but uh, I've had yeah, to that's do really, that with regular arrows. Yeah, so have I. <laughs> You're right, though. You, you know, a lot of a lot of people don't. A small game, even you know. At one time, I was chatting with um with Don Thomas over email for Traditional Bowhunter Magazine, and and I asked him, you know, if I if you wanted to get if somebody wanted to get into the magazine, you know, what's the best way to do it? And he always said, write about small game hunting because nobody does right. it. Oh, and I want to backtrack a little bit. I mentioned chickens for a reason. Not, <laughs> I want you to understand how my mind works as a young man. You know, I, I mean, the guy let me hunt his land. And in return for that, I shot his chickens. I'm not proud of that. That's just what happened. But the bonus plan of all that was the next time I talked to him, he's like, I don't know what's up. My chickens are coming up missing. I said, well, you know what? The daggone foxes and raccoons are probably tearing into them. You need to let me trap this farm and get rid of them for you. (laughs) So then I led a very successful trapping career on that farm, trapping fox and raccoons. And you were you were quite entrepreneurial. You had that worked out. Right. And, and I, I also had motivation beyond my control to be a hardcore bow hunter at a young age. I, I was raised by a dad that was all in the guns. And, and even once I was up, I'm talking well, maybe 14, eh, 14, 15 years old. My dad didn't really want me shooting firearms around the house when he wasn't there. So with all the wisdom of a person that age, I figured what he didn't know wouldn't hurt him. So I got a twenty-two out, and my mother had a bird feeder in the backyard, and I had the bathroom window slid open, and I had a Marlin lever action twenty-two, and I was shooting birds off her bird feeder out the bathroom window. Well, unbeknownst to me, my parents had returned home from their outing early and had stopped at the neighbor's house across the street to visit. So I'm cracking down on mom's songbirds with a 22 out the bathroom window, and my dad's standing across the street with his arms folded listening to me. Do it. So he comes home, didn't even ask me if I did it. And I remember very specifically what he said. He said, I stood over there listening to you shoot that gun, and I was trying to decide how big a stick to get to whip on you with. He said, but I'm not going to do that. He said, I'm taking your guns away. You're done with guns. And when he said that, he was serious as a heart attack because it was a year and a half before I touched a gun again. And this is a young man that, you know, hunted everything that moved every minute of every day he could. So I literally hunted everything with a bow. we were into predator calling back then, and we actually had the old eight-track cassettes, the big old cassettes. Mm-hmm. We had a big old eight-track player with batteries that had a running reel, you know, of a wounded rabbit screaming. And we also had one of a uh, a gray fox pup crying. And that was actually the most effective one, by the way. And this was in Ohio. And at the season of the year when you're shooting foxes, it's January, February. 
And uh, actually, the, the wounded pup cry was very successful when it was the mating season for the fox, which was in February up there. So my buddies are out there with 12-gauge shotguns, and I'm out there with them with my recurve bow at 2 o'clock in the morning calling foxes up and slinging arrows at them. And I'll admit I didn't hit a lot of them, but I did shoot some fox. So my mindset from the very beginning really was if you can't hunt it with a bow, there's probably no need. I mean, I have definitely through the years hunted with a gun off and on, but I have primarily always hunted everything with a bow uh, for what that's worth. I shot my first deer with that same Bear Grizzly 45-pound recurve bow in 1975. I was 15 years old. And again, we were hunting out of ground blinds. We're doing small pushes. And I had a group of four does trot past me at about uh, maybe maybe eight yards. And uh, I was able to shoot one of those does. Wow, so you've, got a, you've just got a rich bow hunting heritage. And that just sounds like, I mean, the perfect you know, childhood for a bow hunter in a pedigree where you were, um, how did that, how did that escalate into everything else? The, how did, how did that get you into like the, uh, the primitive stuff and the atlatls and, right. and, and all that? I don't have an answer for that other than that. I was always fascinated by them. Anytime I saw, I was the kid that would go to the library at school and get out a book about indigenous cultures. Well, let me me step back and and kind of qualify all this stuff. I said I I was a Yankee from Ohio, but I I have lived down here in the Piedmont of South Carolina now for since the late 80s. So I've been I've been in South Carolina for a while. But the area that I grew up in in Ohio was an area that was very heavily inhabited by indigenous people before Europeans got there. Uh, I could find artifacts, you know, every time the neighbors plowed their fields. Uh, Our whole area was rich in Native American culture. Uh, There was a place near me called Fort Island. And uh, it was a place where it was a very swampy area. And I'm going to try to pronounce this word right, and I'll probably get it wrong, but it's when you have a landmass out in the water that's attached to the mainland by a very narrow strip of land, maybe a Nesbeth, I think it's called. But we had that near where I lived. We had a very swampy, wet area, and we had an island out there off the main land, but it was attached to the main land by a very narrow strip of dry ground. And it was a place where the Native Americans would kind of ford up in times of attack and peril because any attacking force would have to come at them down that narrow strip of land and not through the water. So because that area was inhabited so frequently by so many different groups of people, it was very rich in uh, artifacts and as I would find this stuff and it intrigued me I would try to duplicate it make it recreate it and uh, use it and that's kind of what got that ball rolling 
I did that for my own amusement. That was before social media. And uh, kind of taken quite a leap forward for a few years. And around 1996, uh, the, the vice principal of the local middle school here in Iva, South Carolina, where I live now, he approached me about bringing my stuff to the school and letting the, uh, the students see it. And I told him, I'm not a teacher, I'm not a historian, you know, I've got no qualifications to come do that. And he said, your qualification is that you make this stuff and it works. It's not a wall piece, it's not a display piece, it's a functioning piece of equipment. I would like you to bring what you have made to the school and and let my students see it uh, being used. And that's what kind of launched what at the time was I called a Native American living history program. And I bet they were really receptive to that too. I remember when uh, when I was a kid, I, I grew up in the uh, yeah, near Mackinac, mm-hmm. in uh, you know up up in northern Michigan, uh, Sheboygan actually. But um, we had uh, the people from Michelin Mackinac would come in, would come in, and naturally our field trips. You know, we either went to Old Mill Creek, Mackinac Island, or or Michelin Mackinac. You know, for years in elementary school, and I can just remember just seeing that stuff and. And it just made a it made a, a big impression on me back then. Correct. So the kids probably just ate it up, right? Oh yes. And like so many things, I mean, it wasn't anything that I planned to do. Uh, it was requested of me to do it, and when I did it, and the reception was positive. Immediately after that, some of the teachers were like, well, my son is in Boy Scouts or my girls and Girl Scouts. Do you think you could bring this stuff and show them? And one thing led to another, and I spent a great deal of time doing, I guess in a broader term, uh, living history. Uh, Some folks call it uh, experiential archaeology. Whatever it is, I've spent a great deal of time doing it. Very cool, and that kind of led uh, that kind of laid the uh, the building blocks to kind of what you're doing today, yes. right? No. Yeah, and you know we're kind of jumping all over this, but kind of try to keep this thing moving. This all culminated in a student of mine that I had. I, I taught the youth at church for many years. Was a youth Sunday school teacher and. Uh, one of the young men from that class was very adept at social media and uh, shooting video and different things. And, and he suggested to me that I shoot some video of some things that I do. And I got a video camera and shot a bit of video and he edited it and, you know, put a few things up on uh, YouTube for me. And I went from there and got my own camera started doing my own editing and started a YouTube channel and I think this was in 2011 and that rocked on for a little while uh, no real agenda just sharing what I was doing well I, I take that back it, it's wrong to say there was no agenda the purpose of my videos are to be instructive but the purpose of my videos is to have a positive message if you go back and, and look through most of my videos, there's a Bible verse at the end of every one of them that pertains to the subject matter of the video. 
And at that time, my mindset was to have a ministry. And, and my mindset at that time of ministry was that I would go around to different churches and be a speaker at their wild game dinners. But what actually happened was the power of those YouTube videos led to men reaching out to me on social media and it started becoming very common for me to get a uh, message on a YouTube video. Hey, I love what you're doing. I'm a struggling Christian. So I would private message them back and say, just uh, out of curiosity, what's your struggle? And I would slowly build a rapport with these men. And I have men that I have counseled and, and shared with for years through social media that I have never met. And I will add that that includes men from 11 different countries. Wow, that's uh, that's something. So that's kind of where the community element all kind of came into this. It just kind of kind of blew the whole thing wide open, huh? Yeah, and I, I wouldn't go as far as saying blew it wide open. I mean, if you look at my, you know, social media imprint, so to speak, I mean, the numbers are not enormous, but... Well, reaching more than uh, than you than you intended at the beginning. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, and and that's kind of like it's it's you know Steve and I talk about this all the time. It's we have such a love and hate relationship with with you know Facebook and and you know YouTube and Instagram and mostly and social media. mostly hate. Mo- <laughs> as far as Facebook goes, there's a lot of stuff. Everybody on Facebook has an opinion, and we know right. that. But um, and they're not all good, and they're not all positive. Uh, but on the other hand, it, it's almost a necessary, it, it can do a lot of good. Too. Yes, it can. There's a lot of connections that are made there. And for something that you're trying to do, um, where you're spreading a message and, and it's definitely a you know, it's definitely a connection element through the outdoors. There's really not a whole lot of other ways, better ways to get a reach out there for right. that. Right. And, and the um, other power of social media is the anonymity. I can't say that word right right now, but, you know, you don't know them and they don't know you. And so they, well, two things happen. When, when people watch my videos, they feel that they know me. They, they feel a personal connection to me because of watching my videos. And they tend to share things with me that they would not share otherwise. And they feel safe sharing them because we're not doing it one-on-one. We're doing it through social media. It's funny how that works, isn't it? You know, usually when you, uh, I, my, my, like my Facebook, for example, my own, my own Facebook is, is so, my personal Facebook is so convoluted because I've got a lot of different hobbies that I do and I've got communities and people I know that, you know, are pretty much, you know, they all eventually end up, you know, people, certain people end up as personal friends that I message quite a bit. And, and you are, and it's funny how on social media, since nobody really knows you in person, if they haven't met you, they kind of just judge you based on the connection that you have with them for the thing that you are doing that you mutually, that you mutually share. Exactly. And, And they only judge you based on what you're portraying in your body of work. So in your case, what your message is, what you're trying to convey, your videos, and the fact that they they share a kinship with you, an instant connection because you're both you both have similar passions. Correct. 
and that can go a long way. I mean, you people will get real honest with you if you've got a simple connection like that, and you know there's no judgment because you only really know each other based on that one thing. Right. And I'm going to share something quickly to demonstrate the power of this. And this is not this is not uh, for my benefit. Um, and I feel safe sharing this because the individual I'm going to speak about is going to be good with this, and I know it. It's probably been at least five years ago now, at least five years, if not more. I got a phone call at 3 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock in the morning. And it was from a man that I'd never met that had watched my videos and felt comfortable calling me. He was a deacon at his church. And he says, Scott, um, one of our church members, I, I, I don't, I'll just say it. One of our church members found their stepchild in the closet, passed away. They had committed suicide. I have to go speak to that person, and I don't know what to say. So, I didn't know what to say either. But the point of it is, he called me. So I walked him through that process, and he went and did what he had to do for that family. But the offshoot of that is, we developed a relationship. He is a traditional bow hunter, and he has a, you know, a group of about five friends that he shoots with all the time. And I have become best of friends with all five of those men. We have interacted and been part of each other's lives ever since. And it's, it's a special bond. And uh, you don't get that, you know, every day. And you don't get that. Uh, I don't know what to say about it, except that it's a powerful thing. Well, sure. And, and did that kind of... or. You might have already been doing this while you were on social media, but did that kind of segue into your um, kind of like your your homestead programs? And no, and, and programs? that's actually why I brought the YouTube videos up to begin with. All right, I'm sharing what I do. I did not have a master plan. I was just sharing what I do. You know, at that time, there was a prepping movement. And... Doomsday Preppers was on TV. Mm -hmm. And my videos attracted the prepping community. And I will admit that I was uh, hesitant to associate myself or align myself with the prepping community. Because I wasn't really sure what it was all about, and I didn't want it to be a negative connotation attached to me. Sure, sure. Now, I will tell you that those feelings were completely unfounded. You know, TV is for ratings. And the prepping shows that you watch on TV, to me, paint a skewed version of what most preppers are for the benefit of ratings and entertainment. Yeah, well, some people say fully insane or have a lot of drama when right. people tune uh, in. You know, they, they portray you know. preppers as someone who's hiding in a steel box uh, defending a can of beanie weenies with an assault rifle <laughs> and my 
my association with this group has showed me that the average member of this group is just a person that is interested in homesteading, sustainable living, and self-sufficiency. And what intrigued a lot of those people was the archery. So I was invited to go to a fairly large prepping show in Florida, again, about five years ago, and do a series of seminars and classes on archery for prepping. So I went and did it. And it was a good move, and we have done events like that ever since. And uh, it gives me a chance to expose people to traditional archery that are not archers at all. You know, it's very rare today to have a platform to reach large numbers of people for traditional archery that are not archers. And that's basically what I've been doing on a pretty steady basis for the last six years. Man, that is pretty cool that, you know, that is not what I would expect. I, I wouldn't expect archery to draw, to be the thing that draw drew these people to you. That's that's really interesting to me that, I mean, I mean, the, the answer is probably that, you know, it's that whole kinship thing and, and bows, the bows are a conduit. But why do you think it was it's the archery that drew them to you and not everything else that you do? Bobby, I, I have no idea. And I don't know. Well, I, I take that back. I do know. The, 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 the Christian slant on my videos is what did it. Because most of these folks are Christians. That's just the bottom line. And there's a lot of information out there in social media and on YouTube that is just rubbish. And I think that most of them just kind of made a judgment call that uh, the information that I was putting out there was valid. Sure. And, and I'll back that up real quick with uh, just a thought on that subject. If you go on YouTube and watch and you want to watch a video on making a survival bow, there are hundreds of videos on making a survival bow. A few of them are good. Most of them are not. And it is very common to see someone throw together a survival bow, fashion some sort of an arrow, and at the end of the at the end of the video they shoot the arrow and it goes out there ten feet and turns sideways and lands softly into a bush. And they turn and look at the camera <laughs> and say, Well, if you had to in a crisis situation, this would kill a rabbit. No, it would not. Not in this <laughs> lifetime. And I, I think the fact that I have actually taken game with all this stuff after I've made it was the deciding factor to make folks contact me, along with the fact that they like the Christian slant on things, um, for what that's worth. As a matter of fact, 
the first group that contacted me to, to do a rather large uh, prepping and sustainable living event told me that they could have got anybody to shoot a bow but they wanted me to deliver a Sunday morning service to the vendors also so that's what got that whole ball rolling well and that's actually a pretty good segue into uh, <clears throat> into, into archery and bow hunting recruitment Yes, uh, I know you mentioned before the show that you wanted to talk a little bit about that and um, that seems to be kind of a hot topic. It today. is, you know, and, and and you know we're we're losing some of these skills that people had, and and some of these traditions, and and how do we go about getting new people into them and uh, getting them back? So what do you, what do you think about that, Scott? I want to start out by saying that uh, as far as the traditional archery community goes, the concept of recruiting and retaining new archers, we do a very poor job of it. And we are our own worst enemy. Uh, that's my opening statement, and I'll go from there. First of all, <laughs> just as a nation, disregarding traditional hunters or bow hunters, just sportsmen, just individuals in our country that want to participate in the shooting sports and hunt, uh, the decline is substantial. Uh, the, the, the age class of our sportsmen and outdoorsmen is, is increasing yearly and participation is decreasing yearly and it affects us in a, in a lot of different ways uh, I, now I have always referred to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service you know kind of looking at some facts and figures on this thing and I also it's a dirty word in some traditional archery circles but uh, the ATA uh, the Archery Trade Association you know they've got a pulse on the market and who's buying what and between those two organizations if you kind of look at their figures and the reports that they put out uh, like in the early 90s the average age of a hunter was from the mid 30s to the mid 40s by 2012, the average age is mid-50s to mid-60s. Back in the early 90s, about 8% of our population hunted. And right now, about 4% hunts. There's, you know, there's definitely a steady decline. Yep. Um, they, uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service estimated in 2011 that about 13 million Americans were hunters. That seems like a lot, but if you go from that to bow hunters, they figured 33% of those were bow hunters. Uh, the ATA estimates around 24 million folks. And again, that sounds that sounds like a big number, but compared to the total population, it's not. But this decline, from the standpoint of traditional archery, you're working with a demographic that is small and getting smaller. And right now, they're, they're estimating that the average age of an adult bow hunter is 37. So you have a 37-year-old male that's bow hunting. 
Most of those guys are compound shooters. Pretty good handful use a crossbow. And a smaller percentage are trad guys shooting longbows and recurves. So most of us as traditional archery club participants, we all do the thing where we're going to go into schools and churches and we're going to have a youth program. We're going to let small children shoot bows. I think that's a fantastic thing. I have done plenty of it. I think it's vital. But we don't need them. We need their dads. Because if the adult male in that family becomes a traditional bow shooter, the whole family will likely follow him. And his entry into what we do is oftentimes barred because of our attitude towards him. When I look at the traditional archery clubs that I have been around and and I don't go to many shoots anymore. I used to go to a lot of them. But the funny thing about it is, as Steve mentioned, I went to the North Georgia Traditional Archery Club shoot Sunday. There was very few people at that club that I haven't had lunch with, talked to, or shot with 25 years ago. Except the one, the ones that are gone now because they passed away. And we're all older we're all grayer. We're all a little bit heavier. And by the way, Steve, I saw that picture that you put up on social media, me shooting my bow. And I was astounded because uh, looks like my stunt double has gained some weight. <laughs> that, that was a pretty discouraging <laughs> thing to see. I'm going to admit that publicly. But anyway. Well, that's the reason I took a picture of you instead of letting somebody take a picture of me. <laughs> there you so. go. <laughs> but I guess what I'm saying is that th- this is a multi-level situation that we could talk about for three days and we can't do it. But my heart in this is the traditional archery slant on it. And here's what I'm seeing. You know, when we go to our groups and our forums on social media and Facebook and we see the older, crustier, hardcore, traditional bow hunters bantering back and forth about sighting systems and uh, equipment to use and what's real traditional. I think that they put up a pretty strong barrier sometimes that bars entrance into our sport by some of the younger guys. And, And I think their efforts are misguided and detrimental. And the reason I say that is because you know, if, if the average bow hunter today is 37, that's a guy that was born into a family when compound bows were already established, the mainstream, and what everybody shot. Steve, when you were growing up, and, and me when I was growing up, our fathers, or maybe not yours personally, but my dad and all his buddies was shooting recurve bows because a compound bow had not yet been invented. In the late 60s, when I was 8, 9, 10 years old, I went with my dad to field archery events, and all the men shot recurves, target bows, because there weren't any compound bows yet. A lot of the men shot clickers. A lot of the men shot sights. A lot of the men string walked. A lot of the men gap were gap shooting. They were doing anything to have a competitive edge within the limits of the rules to compete. 
There was no concept of traditional archery. It was just archery. So then the compound bow comes on the market. Everybody jumps on the bandwagon. Everybody's shooting compound bows. And then a movement started in the mid-80s to fall back away from those compound bows and get back into traditional archery and get back to our roots. And I was there. I was a participant. And I was all in. I loved every minute of it. And I still do. But we created a group and an atmosphere around our perception of what traditional archery is. And we have kept that perception and carried it through to today. And the situation that we're faced with today is that we have young men that were born and raised shooting compound bows. They're good outdoorsmen. They're successful bow hunters. They've shot a bunch of deer, and they are now looking to increase their challenge. So they're looking at exploring maybe shooting a stick bow. And, and what happens with these guys is, is their, their perception of traditional archery and their desire to participate in the sport is being driven by what they see on social media and on television. And you have, you have people like Fred Eichler. You know, Fred Eichler is one of the first people in, I'll say, modern times that's on, you know, an Easton bow hunting show shooting a recurve bow. And all these young guys that are watching these shows and watching Fred Eichler, they're seeing a younger man shooting a recurve bow. And that influences them to shoot a recurve bow. And we have other individuals now. Uh, I'll use as an example uh, Matthew Davis. Uh, Matt Davis uh, was a sales rep and a marketing guy for Hoyt. He now works, I think, with Mountain Ops doing marketing. Uh, Matthew is a sharp young guy. He's a good athlete. He's an all-round hunter. He fly fishes. He shoots upland game. One heck of a bow hunter. He's out doing media events. He's in the public eye. He is being an industry influencer. These young guys that the statistics are telling us are the meat of the bow hunting population today, guys like Matthew Davis are influencing them to try shooting a stick bow. You also got the guys that we like uh, Matt Zernzak and Tim Neville, you know, from the Push. They came out with that YouTube video, and they exposed everybody to a way of shooting a stick bow that some of us old hardcore traditional guys, you know, might frown on a little bit. You got you have guys like Aaron Snyder. Aaron Snyder is a lightning rod. You know, love him or hate him. I mean, he's there. He's on social media, and he's influencing this mid to late 30s age group towards shooting a stick bow and you can't paint them all with a broad brush they're all individuals but for example like with Aaron Snyder he started out on social media posting about shooting game animals at 108 yards away with a compound bow and we could all look at him and say that dirty SOB but yet, he started shooting a stick bow, and now he's on social media talking about the thrill 
of getting eight yards away from a mule deer. So we have this young, aggressive alpha male in his mid-30s. He shot a whole pile of deer with compound bow, and he wants to get a stick bow. He is not going to get a self-bow. He is more than likely going to buy what the market has to bear today. And uh, Steve, you saw some of it in my hands Sunday. It's not what us old guys would really think of as a real traditional bow. You have ILF risers. You have limbs that have carbon and foam in them. I mean, it's, it's light years away from our concept of a traditional bow. But that's what these young guys are going to show up with to these shoots. And it's kind of like starting a fire. You know, I can start a fire with a bow drill. And once you get an ember, you don't throw a log on it. Once you get an ember, you put little shreds of bark on it, a little bit of dry grass, little twigs. You fan it into a flame. You put sticks on it the size of a pencil. They flame up. You put sticks on it the size of your thumb. You, you gradually build this fire. Well, with these younger men that are coming in to the traditional community and shooting stick bows, you know, when they show up at a club or when they start interacting on social media with some of these groups and they start asking questions, are they barred entry because they're not doing it right based on our perception? You know, that doesn't benefit anybody. You've got to meet them where they're at and expose them to what we do and let them make the decision to go that direction if they choose to. And if they don't, it's their God-given right to do it any way they want to. It's legal. We lose sight of that. And I think it's a detriment to our sport that we do. Well, you're, we're, we're definitely not going to show them or convince them of any other way by criticizing what they're already doing. That's definitely does not work. Right. And, <laughs> and, and here's seen. the other thing about it. I mean, right now, and again, the, the ATA survey they came out with, it's been a couple years back now. They're saying that archery is on the increase. Because you, you look at the movies now, like the Hunger Games and, and the, the series Arrow and the animated movie Brave, where the little curly redheaded girl is shooting her bow and it shows a perfect archer's paradox of her arrow when it shoots. There are young people flocking to the sport of archery, but 76% of them are recreational archers. They're not bow hunters. Mm -hmm. So yeah, what, the, what do you uh, do with that group? Well, the and it's funny you mentioned that because we were, you know, without having any any stats or anything with me or anything like that. I mean, we're we're seeing that here in Michigan a lot. Um, I was just remarking to Steve the other day when I got back from the the traditional expo in Kalamazoo, um, what the crowd looked like, and I noticed the difference more so this year than I have in the past five years. Absolutely. Where the crowd looks different than it used to. Especially, it's light years different from when, the way it looked nine years ago when I got into this. You know, because you had a lot of aging archers walking around that had a certain look to them. Well, this year I noticed 
that there was a lot more of, like you said, the guys my age or, you know, 37 to 34, you know, a little bit younger than that. And they had the, they had that look to them. You know what I mean? Like you could tell that they were more into Aaron's camp, you know, cause Aaron was the speaker there. And I will tell you that when Aaron spoke, the entire place emptied out to go watch Aaron mm-hmm. speak. And I have not seen the only other time I saw that was Monty Browning three years ago or two years ago, something like Correct. that. And that was fascinating to see just because the floor emptied, it emptied. Right. And, but the crowd looked different. The crowd looked like there was people, more people with like just that look, you know, like the, you know, more tactical looking stuff, more, you had podcast hats, you had, you know, things like that. Right. You know, it just was, a, it was a different look. And those people were not there a few years right. ago. And here's the thing about these people that we have to understand. They don't give a rip about a stone arrowhead. They don't care about a leather back quiver. They just want to shoot a bow. But once they come see what we do, if that turns their crank, they're gonna, you know, they're gonna step farther back into it, so to speak, and might end up there. But mm-hmm. you got to kind of meet them where they're at. Yep, and this is kind of this is where social media fails, and this is where we have the problem with it. Um, because everything, like, if you, it's so, it's so much easier to have a conversation with somebody like at the expo where you're just happy to be there and happy to be around bows and arrows and other, and other people that have that association with you and nobody's going to come up to you and just start and, and have a confrontation with you out of the blue. Cause there's not that, you know, right. amenity. I can't say it now either. <laughs> I, I used to say it like a headphone on. <laughs> yep. And, um, you don't, you don't have that and, and everybody gets along. And that's the same way in, in, in real life. You don't have that in any right. topic. You know, you have it's live and let live for the most part with, with most people that you right. see. But when you as soon as you add that element of social media, it's 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 so much easier to be negative and let whatever's bothering you and then and tonelessly communicate where everything's assumed to be negative. And the worst part about it is that it lingers. It doesn't go away. Like if you were at a coffee shop and you heard somebody make a remark that you didn't like, that was gone after he said it. Right. Social media, it's there forever. It's is there as long as the is the is the actual conversation is up. So it's almost like that negative comment has now become a billboard for everybody to see. Un- so unless, if there's a lurker, you, unless you rage post like I do, and then you go back and delete it. But I want to say one thing though. Go ahead. Go ahead. You know there are groups like the Professional Bow Hunter Society. There are groups like the Traditional Bow Hunters of Georgia. There are men like Dan Quillian that fought tirelessly to protect and defend the sport of traditional archery from, for lack of a better way of putting it, interlopers that would come in and just ruin it. I mean, there is a certain standard that needs maintained to keep it from becoming something that it's not. That, that is a tough subject. But what I'm saying is, Mm-hmm. I support these groups. I'm one of them. I, I love it. I love nothing more than to shoot a self-bow. I love nothing more than to put my wool and plaid on and my leather moccasins and, and do the whole trad thing. 
I, I love it. And, it. and it needs protected. I mean, we can't let that go away. You know, we need that heritage and we need that tradition for these younger guys to come to. We just have to figure out a way not to run them off before we get a chance to expose them to it. Yeah, better to better to be an example than a condemner. That's that's for. That's and for there's sure. another. And you notice I'm not afraid of hot topics, right? I mean, this doesn't bother me a bit. I, I you know, I'm I'm all in. Hey, no, we asked you about recruitment, right? You're giving us the answer. And, and there's another thing that makes me get sideways really quick, and that's when you bring up the topic of sighting systems and shooting instinctively and and sighting off the tip of the arrow and all this other stuff. And everybody has their own camp, and they sit in that camp, and they banner back and forth and plug up the airways, and it's just it's trash. And here's the way that I look at this. I have been a successful, instinctive bow hunter for 30 years. I've killed a truckload of stuff that I promise you I did not need to see the tip of my arrow. I was shooting instinctively. But times change. Life catches up with you. You have families. You have obligations. I don't shoot as much as I used to. And I'm, I'm using myself as an example to not, you know, talk about anybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, there's been times through the past 10 years that uh, I didn't get to shoot my bow much. And then right before season, I tried to grab it and shoot it too much, you know, hurt myself, hunted sore and hurt the whole season with a bow that I had no right shooting because it was too much poundage, and and this other thing. And I liken it to a group of kids in middle school in gym class, and you give them all a basketball, and, and they've never seen a basketball before. Some of those kids are going to dribble that ball. They're going to throw it on the ground. It's going to bounce up. They're going to catch it. They might throw it at the the basket and bounce it off the backboard. You know, some of those kids are going to to bounce that ball off the ground and catch it and throw it and miss the backboard. Some of those kids are going to throw that thing on the ground. It's going to bounce up, and they can't catch it, and it rolls up against the wall. Each and every one of those young people can improve. Each and every one of those young people can become a better version of their self, but they are not all going to be basketball players. If you're a gifted person and you can proficiently shoot a bow instinctively, God bless you. I mean, I'm proud of you, and we're going to all get out here and applaud when you shoot your bow. But if you cannot hit yourself in the butt with both hands, don't go wounding game animals. I mean, figure out a way to shoot the bow accurately. If that means taking lessons, if that means shooting off the tip of the arrow as a sight, I don't care what you have to do. All I care about is that you're a proficient bow hunter and not wounding game animals. And whatever it takes to get you there, we're still going to be friends, and we're still going to shoot together, and it's not going to bother me, not one bit, what you do. As long as that arrow is going in the right place when you need it to. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit on Sunday, uh, Scott, and I, I completely agree with you. I'm, 
And I think we, you know, when we were talking about this, you were you were uh, talking about how you had moved or were moving away. I forget which away from you know totally instinctive. Um, and I, I'm, you know, I may have to at, at some point in time, but no, I will. Right now, I, I try to stay away from all of right. it because I just don't want anything messing with my shooting. Uh, but well, I see, really, I'm like you. If they can hit the target, I don't care what they're doing. Right, and and I had a completely different agenda. And see, this is what we talked about earlier. When someone sees you doing something on social media, they make a judgment based on that one snippet of your life. I promise you, I have hunted with a self-bow and a cane arrow and a stonehead, hunted with an English, with a hill-style longbow, and hunted with an ILF rig like you saw me shooting Sunday with carbon arrows and lighted knocks and the whole bit. I have hunted with all three of those things in the same season and shot deer. I do what makes me happy when I wake up that morning. So if you saw me with a self-bow in my hand and you made a judgment on what type of bow hunter I am, you'd be wrong. And if you saw me with an ILF rig with carbon and foam limbs and a carbon arrow and you made a judgment on what kind of bow hunter I am, you'd be wrong. I mean, we are all gifted with the ability to be multifaceted. And the reason we do this is to enjoy the sport. And however that enjoyment comes to us, that's our boat to sail. I mean, you know, some people don't feel that way, but I'm like, if you're doing your thing and you're happy, you do you and I'll do me. You know, I don't need to bash you because you're not doing it the way I do. Right. right. And if somebody mm-hmm. wants to do that, um, I'm not afraid to tell them they're wrong. Not really. I would have never guessed that about you, Scott. <laughs> 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 well, this has been a really great conversation, Scott. Uh, man, we really covered a lot in the time you were on here, didn't well, we? Well, I'm a Yankee. I talk fast. <laughs> I always tell people you got to listen fast because I'm going to talk fast. Well, there's some there's some good good messages in what you had to say, Scott. And I'll be honest, I think uh, uh, I know I would really have liked to have talked more tonight, but uh, just just can't so that'll give me a really good excuse to to invite you back to the show in the in the near future and we, i would love go to down do it because you know, we'll go down some additional rabbit trails yeah well we need, we need to talk about equipment we need to talk about broadheads yeah, we, and arrows so uh, yep we can do that and we will yeah. uh we'll definitely get something We'll definitely get something scheduled. I hope I, I hope I get to see you at North Georgia again. I hope that wasn't your only trip this year. No, I'll make it back. Good deal. Good deal. We'd, we'd definitely love to have you, and maybe you can uh, bring one of your self-bows next time. Absolutely. I can do it. All right. Nick, I really do appreciate you uh, taking the reins and running with us tonight, and uh, hopefully I'll feel better by next week, okay? Yeah, and uh, it, it was a real honor meeting you, Scott, and uh, you know, watching some of your videos on there. I'm going to watch a whole bunch more of them and, and getting to know you and what you're doing, and uh, I hope I get to shoot with you someday. Absolutely. I'd love it, and I appreciate you, too, and what you do. It's been a very enjoyable evening for me, and uh, just keep on doing it. We, we sure plan to. Thank you so much, Scott. You take care, and uh, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Take care, all. See you.